You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Explosions at Iranian nuclear sites remain unexplained, but look increasingly like conventional sabotage as opposed to cyber attacks. The Cosmic Lynx gang sets a high bar for business email compromise. The Purple Fox exploit kit gets an upgrade. Ben Yellen describes a Fifth Amendment compelled decryption case that may be headed to the Supreme Court. Our guest is Hugh Thompson, chairman of the RSA conference program on the human element of cybersecurity and lessons learned shifting a conference online. And a network of coordinated inauthenticity and fictitious persona is found fishing an Emirati official line. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, July 7th, 2020. The explosions and fires last week at Iran's Natanz nuclear facility and some other installations continue to remain officially unexplained. The BBC reports that Tehran says it knows what caused the fire at Natanz, but that Tehran isn't saying. It looks, however, more like physical sabotage than either an accident or the kinetic cyber attack that was the subject of weekend speculation. And whoever speaking for the self-described Iranian dissident group, the Homeland Cheetahs, appears to have had advanced knowledge of the incident, but the putative group materialized from nowhere and increasingly looks like a false flag. The Washington Post quotes an anonymous Middle Eastern security official who spoke on condition that both his identity and nationality be concealed to the effect that the damage was caused by a bomb placed inside the facility. The operation, that source says, was an Israeli effort to send a message that would deter Iran from accelerating its pursuit of nuclear weapons. Agari describes Cosmic Links, a Russian gang responsible for 200 business email compromise attacks in 46 countries over the past year. Tempted as we might be to think that overworked county clerk's offices and gentle little mom-and-pop small businesses are the natural prey of the BEC scammer, Cosmic Links has bigger fish to fry. As Agari puts it, quote, Unlike most BEC groups that are relatively target agnostic, Cosmic Links has a clear target profile, large multinational organizations. Nearly all of the organizations Cosmic Links has targeted have a significant global presence, and many of them are Fortune 500 or Global 2000 companies, end quote. They're also selective with respect to the people they prospect. About three-quarters of them hold the title managing director, vice president, or general manager. The gang shows a regular pattern. They use the bogus intention of acquiring an Asian company as the pretext of their request. They impersonate the victim company's CEO in an email, asking them to work with external legal counsel to arrange the payments necessary to closing the acquisition. 
That external counsel is the hijacked identity of a real attorney. Agari says the imposture involves an actual British law firm. Once the hook is set, the corporate mask is induced to send payments to Mule accounts Cosmic Links controls. The average Cosmic Links ask is $12.7 million, two orders of magnitude larger than the average seen in BEC attacks in general, which normally run about 55 grand. The Mule accounts are usually in Hong Kong, sometimes in Hungary, Portugal, or Romania, but never in the United States. Large or small, organizations should consider the training and policies that can help protect them against business email compromise. For those of us who attended the 2020 RSA conference in San Francisco earlier this year, it's a safe bet that it was the last major gathering most of us attended before COVID-19 shut everything down. For organizations like RSA, who run multiple conferences around the world, this presents the obvious challenge of how to continue doing so in a safe way while still providing the value attendees demand. Hugh Thompson is chairman of the RSA conference program, and he joins us with lessons learned shifting their upcoming Asia-Pacific and Japan conference online. Full disclosure, the CyberWire is a media partner with RSA. Uh, we are just in unprecedented times. You know, we were we were very fortunate to have RSA conference uh, in the U.S. earlier in the year. But now we find ourselves in a period where most people are at home, maybe home for a significant amount of time, but they still need the kind of content that RSA conference provides and the kind of connective tissue that we provide for the industry. So we're finding ourselves asking, how do you reproduce something that's such a, a human experience that's you know the interaction of people and you know the transferring of knowledge and calibration to something that people can consume at home and really get a lot of value out of. And that's what we've we've tried to do, that's what we've strived to do and We'll have a, a, a big launch of it uh, in our upcoming RSA APJ conference. Do you suppose when we find ourselves on the other side of this and, and people feel as though they can get back together safely, are there going to be changes to large conferences like RSA or are people going to approach them differently? I think so. I think that if you are an organizer of a large conference, one of the first questions you have to ask is, how do you make the virtual experience rich, whether you have an in-person component or not? I think that's going to be critical. And there's some fascinating benefits to it. One is that it really opens up the attendance to many, many more folks. Like for example, you know, for RSA conference, we see every year that part of a security team from a large company can go to the conference. And then maybe the following year, a different set of people from the security team can go to the conference. And it's a budgetary issue. It's a you know availability of resources issue. But with an event being virtual or at least having a strong virtual component, you can actually bring a lot more people together. And I've heard this from many other folks that are organizing these large virtual events is the amount of attendance, the amount of registration, the amount of interest. 
I think we're building the community in a meaningful way. And what we're seeing is the humanity of this space shine through. And that's incredibly encouraging. I think most folks who are outside the security industry don't realize how human and how collaborative a space that it really is. And we're really seeing that come to the forefront um, during these times. That's Hugh Thompson from RSA. The 2020 RSA Asia Pacific and Japan Virtual Conference kicks off July 15th. Security firm Proofpoint reports that the Purple Fox exploit kit has gained capabilities exploiting two known and patched Microsoft vulnerabilities. Purple Fox, described this past September by Trend Micro, appears to be a successor to the widely used rig exploit kit. The crew behind Purple Fox apparently decided it made business sense to bring exploit kit development in-house. Proofpoint has now observed Purple Fox exploiting CVE-2020-0674 and CVE-2019-1458. The former is a memory corruption vulnerability in Internet Explorer that Microsoft fixed on January 18th. Proof-of-concept exploits have been published since then. The latter vulnerability is a Windows privileged escalation bug Kaspersky observed being exploited last October in the Operation Wizard Opium watering hole attacks. Microsoft fixed that one in December's 2019 Patch Tuesday release. And the obvious message here is the simple one. Patch. These aren't zero days. An investigation by the Daily Beast has exposed a journalistic persona, one Raphael Badani, represented as an international affairs expert whose bylines have appeared in the Washington Examiner, Real Clear Markets, American Thinker, and The National Interest. There is, however, no such guy at all. Raphael Badani's online pictures were scraped from the unknowing site of a San Diego entrepreneur who had no idea his image was being appropriated. And Raphael Badani's profile claimed degrees from George Washington and Georgetown Universities, but sorry, no, he didn't attend either. In fairness to Raphael Badani, how could he have attended? After all, poor guy doesn't even exist, and trust us, it's tough to get through a university program when not only are you not there, you're not anywhere. You thought distance learning was tough? Try non-existence learning. The Badani persona wasn't a lonely one-off either. It, he, it, figured in a network that boasted a lineup of at least 19 other policy catfish, whose general line was to praise the United Arab Emirates and advocate a harder line toward Qatar, Turkey, and Iran and toward those nations' proxies in the Levant. Their work also appeared in Human Events, The Post-Millennial, The Jerusalem Post, Al-Arabiya, and The South China Morning Post. The catfish were often linked to the Arab Eye and Persia Now, which served as central sites for sourcing their work. Some of the news outlets, notably the Washington Times, have taken down the contributed content with a brief notice. Others still have it up. Twitter yesterday took down a number of accounts associated with the coordinated inauthenticity, but the whole episode serves as a useful cautionary tale of the relative ease with which it's possible to place pieces, especially as op-eds in news outlets. It's even easier if their editorial boards are disposed to a sympathetic hearing of your message. You may have heard the old saw, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, or the underworld platitude, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. 
Here's another one for us to consider. Keep the enemies of your enemies closest of all. They may not have your best interests at heart. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, always great to have you back. Good to be with you, Dave. Uh, interesting story here. Uh, this came across my desk via Oren Kerr, who's a uh, well-known, um, I guess, legal pundit on Twitter. Is that a fair way to describe him? Yeah, he's a law professor at UC Berkeley. We, uh, I, I'm a great admirer of his, even though we right. differ on some political issues. But he is probably <laughs> the foremost uh, legal expert in this country on Fourth Amendment and uh, Fifth Amendment issues relating to technology. Well, he brings up a case here uh, from the Indiana Supreme Court uh, who has uh, split with uh, a Massachusetts court uh, with a case that may be heading to the Supreme Court, and it's all about compelled decryption. What's going on here, Ben? So uh, the case, as you said, comes from the Indiana Supreme Court. It was a woman who was placed under arrest. Law enforcement took her iPhone. They thought that iPhone contained incriminating evidence. Detective couldn't get into the iPhone because the iPhone was locked. Uh, law enforcement got a warrant to force this person to enter in the passcode to unlock her phone. She refused, and the trial court held her in criminal contempt. So this, of course, concerns the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. The Fifth Amendment says the government cannot force you to be a witness against yourself. This only applies to testimonial evidence, so things you say, the contents of your own mind. And there's this related doctrine uh, as it comes to compelled decryption called the foregone conclusion doctrine. So the government can force somebody to submit testimonial evidence if the government already knows the testimonial aspect of the act and isn't trying to actually learn anything through that compelled act. Hmm. The question in these cases is what counts as what is the actual testimony being sought through compelled decryption here? What Oren Kerr has argued is that the only testimonial act involved is the person admitting that they know their own passcode. If the government is aware that the person knows their own passcode, then there is no Fifth Amendment violation because it is a foregone conclusion that a person knows their own passcode. 
Presumably, they've been able to open that phone in the past. There's all different types of information. You're not forcing a person to reveal anything new by compelling them to decrypt their device. The conflicting view, and this is a view that uh, has been adopted by a number of other scholars, says that testimony is not just the knowledge of one's own passcode, but the contents, the knowledge of the contents on one's own device. And in a separate jurisdiction, a 2011 case, a federal court actually adopted that alternative view that the Fifth Amendment does apply in these circumstances because you're not just revealing that you know the passcode. You're revealing that you are aware of the information that is on the device, the potentially incriminating information, and you are making that information available to uh, the government. Hmm. Uh, the Indiana Supreme Court uh, is taking this alternative view as well, and this goes against uh, the jurisprudence of other state courts, specifically, as you mentioned, the Massachusetts Supreme Court. They're saying that a suspect surrendering an unlocked phone implicitly is communicating not only that they know the passcode, but that they know the files on that device exist, that incriminating information exists, and the suspect is admitting that they possess those files and are aware of those files. And in the view of this court, that counts as testimonial evidence that would invoke the right against self-incrimination. So the upshot of all of this is now we have competing case law coming from state Supreme Courts, and at least Professor Kerr and I think many other scholars are predicting that this is sort of on a collision course for the Supreme Court. Eventually, the Supreme Court is going to have to decide, based on their own view of the issue, which one of these approaches uh, best fits with the original intent of the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Hmm. Um, so I, you know, whether it's this Indiana case that actually makes it up to the Supreme Court um, or whether it's a different case, uh, I think this is something that we're going to see the Supreme Court wrestle with in the coming years. Hmm. Uh, do you have a take on it? Do, do you f feel like uh, it should go one way or the other? I sort of I disagree with Professor Kerr on, issue, uh, uh, on this issue, and I kind of agree with the alternative view of different scholars that the testimonial act is admitting that you know incriminating information is on that device. It's not just the knowledge of your password. It's sort of like being forced to reveal something very personal, like a, a diary, knowing that you know the contents of that diary, not that you know how to actually physically open, you know, the notebook that you've that you've written that diary in, if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, I think the spirit of the Fifth Amendment is not letting the government force somebody to testify against themselves, to incriminate themselves. Uh, it's a fundamental tenet of our uh, criminal justice system and of um, the due process of criminal defendants. And I think that would be violated if this foregone conclusion doctrine uh, is applied as it relates to compelled decryption. Wow. Yeah, interesting uh, to see this one make its way through the courts. Yeah, and I would love to see the Supreme Court resolve this issue one way or another. Um, just because we do have this pretty fundamental split between state Supreme Courts. Yeah. All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers... 
Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.